Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. And in this episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Tom Parker, head of China for the Australian Football League, which means we are talking about something I'm very passionate about, and that's sports. More specifically, we are discussing the ins and outs of trying to take one of the most indigenous sports on the planet and introduce it to the largest population on the planet. We discussed some of the backstory on why the AFL decided to go to China in the first place, how the AFL has been received so far in China, the eccentricities of the Chinese sports fan, and the challenges presented to Tom trying to grow the sport there. We talk about how to market a sport like the AFL in China and what the fanship of a Chinese sports fan looks like when they are following their team. We also talk about Australia's relationship with China over the years and why Tom is optimistic that the worst of it is behind them. Enjoy. You know, I think the kind of coming out was 84 in the Olympics without the Russians there, the LA Games, you know, leaning, winning and where that went from there. And then on, on top of that, I think you had volleyball, obviously, has been huge for ages, you know, gymnastics and then diving as well, where they've been really, really super good and, and then table tennis. And I think what you saw from kind of organized or professional sports, a lot of those were Olympic or, or, or sports, which, you know, interestingly, are actually very individual in their, in their kind of orientation. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So let's talk a little bit about your history in China. You know, some about how you ended up in China, your, where your interest in China began, some of your professional successes in the market there. Sure. Well, I guess uh, in some ways it kind of is quite fitting that it was family that kind of introduced me to China. So I'm, I'm the youngest of seven, which is quite unusual in Australia. Um, and my older sister, one of my older sisters married a Bruneian Chinese guy who studied high school here in Australia. And then they met at university. Um, and they, um, he, his father was quite ill at the time and he used to come to Melbourne for dialysis. And so we kind of through the marriage, got kind of introduced to an overseas Chinese community. Um, and this is in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And I was like a young kid. I was like, you know, seven or eight. Um, and it was just kind of captivating in a way that um, uh, Australia was a fairly monoculture at that time. Um, and to kind of be invited out to Yamcha, to be eating chicken's feet, to be going to Baptist weddings in sort of, sort of deep suburban Melbourne, you know, where the groom had a bigger perm than the bride. And, you know, it was, it was crazy times. And I think it was just that sort of sense of, of difference of whether it was, you know, uh, I don't know, the food, the, the, the dragons, the firecrackers, it was all that sort of aspect that we kind of got caught up in through my, um, my sister's, uh, marriage and I guess introduction. They moved back to Southeast Asia. Um, but we kind of got um, adopted in. And, and interestingly enough, it was my mum who in the mid-80s 
took a night class uh, to learn Mandarin. And she wanted to do it because um, her son-in-law's uh, grandmother, her uh, pawpaw, was uh, was from uh, Fujian um, and she didn't speak any English. She was a tiny, tiny little woman. And my mum really wanted to talk to her. My mum had always had an interest in kind of decorative arts and the culture and those things of China. And so I guess seeing my mum do it, and then I was really kind of lucky enough to go to a, a high school only really one of a handful that actually taught Mandarin uh, in the 80s. And so I, I kind of... I had context for that language learning and Australians are pretty bad language learners, you know, French and German are your usual sort of, you know, subjects. And then more recently in the seventies, it was Indonesian uh, and then Japanese, obviously through the eighties, but yeah, doing Mandarin in the eighties was, was kind of pretty weird. Um, and it was just a subject I really liked. And so from there, I, um, uh, I sort of did it at university and then probably for me, I went to China at the end of my first year of university, which would have been, um, early nineties, 90, 92, I think in the 92, 93, that sort of winter in Beijing and studied at the second foreign languages Institute with a whole bunch of kind of, uh, Australians that were over there doing a, I guess, a, like a, a winter study break, um, our summer. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. For me, it's sort of all the stories and all the dialogues that you learn in textbooks kind of came to life. And, um, I remember the moment it was like sitting in the soft sleeter waiting room of the Beijing railway station. And I'm sure Todd, you've been there many times. And back then they had these heavy, heavy, um, kind of armchairs with like um, Andy Macassar kind of um, slips over the back and, um, you know, like a glass cabinet selling um, instant noodles and stuff like that. And I remember seeing a sign for M&Ms and it said in Chinese and I could read it melts in your mouth, not in your hand. And it was that moment where I thought, wow, I was really fascinated with that sort of intersection of kind of, I guess, Western consumer culture and and, um, and advertising and, and, um, and how it was being brought into to China. I mean, I'm reflecting back. I mean, at that stage, I probably just wanted <laughs> to buy some some candy. But um, yeah, for me, that was kind of the moment. So hard shell confectionery changed my life. Um, and then from then on, I, I kind of went through university, um, uh, did my honours, went and studied at ANU, which is a pretty well-known um, sinology department, um, studied under a guy called Jeremy Barme, who's sort of one of Australia's leading Sinologists and really thought I was going to end up like an academic. So I was studying, I was really into music. Um, I, uh, um, oh, sorry, I should say I went to China, I studied in, in Shanghai at Huashida, East China Normal University for a year after my undergraduate degree before I did my postgrad. Uh, I played in a band, we were called Hogwall or Hot Pot. I was nicknamed lamb obviously because i was white <laughs> and um we played we played in oh, all the you know and all the kind of it was that sort of it was 95 i think and so you know bars were starting to open up uh, they weren't just expat bars anymore they were kind of having music and uh it was like it was like spinal tap it was awesome i you know we we had musicians who were proper proper musicians from the Shanghai Conservatory of Music that were cellists and, you know, Chinese percussionists. And, and here I was like a, a long-haired white guy from Melbourne who knew a few alternate tunings. Um, and that was, that was good enough. I actually played with a couple of African bands too, which was cool. Um, but so I had a really interest in music. So I did my postgrad on, on Deng Lijin or Teresa Tung, um, uh, you know, and she was a Taiwanese kind of songstress who kind of took 
China by storm in the 80s and was labelled a spiritual pollutant and all this sort of stuff. So I kind of was into that space. And then um, our government shifted from being a very pro-China um, and very much into Asian languages and, and, and kind of embracing, um, I guess, our near northern neighbours to kind of being a lot more conservative and, and probably more traditional. Um, every business focused. And so I kind of stepped out of academia and then worked in kind of public programs. I worked for an organization called AsiaLink, which is very much like and founded on the same sort of principles of the Asia Society in New York. Similarly, instead of the Rockefeller Foundation, it was the Meyer Foundation, which is a very famous um, Melbourne business family. Uh, did their public programs for a couple of years and really, really enjoyed it. Lucky enough to get uh, a scholarship from the Australian government um, in the early 2000s, in 2000 it was actually, and I was in my late 20s. I kind of studied in China for a while. Um, I was still kind of dabbling and still using my Chinese, but I hadn't really worked in China, and so I really wanted to get over there to work in China. Um, and I think I wrote to the Beijing Olympic Big Committee and said, oh, I can do your PR or something. And I didn't, I didn't get the gig, but um, I ended up uh, getting a scholarship. And so through that, I... Um, uh, we got to study again um, at the University of International Business in Beijing and um, studied in Chinese and doing, doing like, you know, Deng Xiaoping's four modernizations in Chinese was was pretty pretty amazing. But as a scholarship student, I think they just kind of passed us anyway, even though, you know, my, my Chinese was nowhere near as good as my Korean uh, classmates. And, um, and then from there, I kind of did a whole bunch of internships. I worked with Brian Wallace at Redgate Gallery for, a, for, a, for a bit. Um, cause I knew him through sort of some programs we'd done at AsiaLink and then, um, worked for the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in their Beijing bureau. So, um, I was kind of a stringer. I was a researcher, a part-time translator, uh, and really loved it. And, um, and from there, that was really kind of, um, where I thought I was going to end up in, in terms of media and journalism. And I'd been sort of doing that for a while in different guises, mainly through magazines and, and, and print. And, um, yeah, no, it was, a, it was, a, it was a great opportunity. I actually met my wife, um, who was, uh, also from, uh, Melbourne. So it's weird that you kind of travel halfway around the world and end up um, with someone <laughs> <laughs> from, from, from your own town. And so we, 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 uh, yeah, we had a whirlwind romance in, in Beijing. Um, but both of us kind of feeling in our late twenties, we wanted to change our careers and realized that and had sort of seen that there's that kind of foreign expat princeling mentality where you get offered these crazy roles or opportunities, whether it's a modeling contract or, uh, you know, or, or you, or you go and work for your national broadcaster, you know, just because of proximity and, and opportunity, you get these. And particularly in those days, I think there were fewer foreigners that spoke Chinese. Um, yeah. And, I was on the radio for a while. <laughs> yeah. And like, um, yeah, I, I got, I got a magazine. I got like, I'm not photogenic and, um, I think when I was at uni in 95, I was in some, you know, fashion spread for, for shirts in some kind of Shanghai fashion magazine. And I got recognized, you know, in a, in a urinal, which wasn't a good thing. So anyway, we'll, <laughs> but, but the, hey, aren't you that guy? Uh, anyway, we'll but, um, yeah. And so we moved back to Australia. Um, I, I, I kind of stuck at it with the ABC for a bit, but kind of realized I wasn't a broadcast journal from there. 
Um, I went into politics while well, I worked for our, our city of Melbourne, which is our local government or the sort of city government, uh, as a media advisor and then transitioned into a trade role. And then really from there, found my straps and really loved taking businesses to China. And then in 2007, just before the GFC, I, I went out on my own and set up my own business, um, which was really a China advisory business called Red Tap Consulting. Um, and so um, really, we left China or I left China living there in sort of two, just before SARS. Um, and um, But I've been back pretty much, you know, every year, anywhere between sort of four to 12 times a year, depending on clients and things and still keeping up my contacts. So, yeah, working um, and then that China advisory business was acquired by another business called uh, Bastion. Uh, and then uh, sort of about two years ago, sorry, yeah, two years ago, yeah, almost two years ago, took up a, a new role um, at the AFL. But I think for me, probably my couple of my big highlights was in 2010 as part of the World Expo. I, I worked for one of the businesses that managed the uh, Australian Pavilion and the US Pavilion and the Brazilian and I think the New Zealand coffee shop, which was weird, but anyway, it was, a, it was an Australian-run sort of business that, um, uh, like, yeah, r- ran these things. And so I did a lot of recruitment for staff in um, the Australian Pavilion, uh, bilingual staff. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to kind of showcase um, Australian kind of culture and sport. So um, I'd been working on this project for a couple of years, but we got to do it at the 2010 uh, World Expo, we got the Australian government to kind of support the AFL pre- presenting an exhibition match. Um, and I know the AFL's played in Toronto, they played in, I think, Vancouver. They used to have a series in Miami and uh, America, Japan. They've, you know, pretty much been all over the world, but they'd never really played a, an official exhibition game in China. So the Melbourne Football Club and the Brisbane Lions played uh, as part of the World Expo, I think on the second last weekend, about October the 18th or something, out at Jiangwan Stadium which is this amazing um, Art Deco kind of Neolithic concrete masterpiece built in the 1930s for the for the national games. Um, and it's one of the few kind of stadiums in the world, in China anyway, that can hold the um, the dimensions that we require for our playing pitch, our playing field. So, yeah, playing, getting that off the ground um, and seeing that sort of succeed. Um, and I'm a Melbourne um, supporter and to kind of see um, Melbourne come from behind and win in the last quarter in <laughs> in Shanghai was a was a was a great feeling. So yeah, that's kind of one of my 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 uh, my great uh, achievements. I think. Talk to us a little bit about the the AFL. What is the AFL, and what are you doing in your day to day as head of China? Sure. So um, the AFL is the Australian Football League. It's uh, I guess Australia's dominant um, local sporting code um, and only our only sort of truly Indigenous one. So it, it's comparable to the NFL or the NBA in terms of its reach uh, or the NHL uh, in terms of TV audiences. Um, I think we're the third most um, attended, um, you know, on average uh, sort of games uh, in the world uh, behind sort of N- NFL, Bundesliga and the EPL. So, you know, we have about 7 million fans come to come to the games, um, great TV audiences of over 120 million, which, you know, for North American um, uh, audiences, that's not very big, but in a, in a, in a country of 25 million, that's huge. So uh, we have over 1 million uh, Australians are paid up members of an AFL club. So it, 
which means sort of one in 25 Australian gives money to an AFL club. So we, we're dominant. Our, our AFL grand final, which is on in four weeks' time, is the most watched um, show, uh, TV show or TV broadcast in Australia. So we're, and it grew out of being a kind of a, a winter sport to keep cricketers fit. Um, in, in, in Victoria. And so a history of about 160 odd years founded in 1858. It's a, it's a unique game that kind of brings in, um, kind of people have called it aerial ping pong, um, has no offside. It's 18 players. It's, uh, yeah, it's a great spectacle. Um, and certainly I think for those 150 odd years, with the exception of kind of exhibition games, which were probably more end of season trips for the players and officials. And getting them to go to great locations, uh, and, you know, having a good time. There was no real effort really to, to expand out, um, and look beyond our own backyard. Um, I, I think for us, the reason for China is that, you know, China is, uh, uh, Australia's number one trading partner. We have a significant Chinese population here in Australia. 5%, um, of our, of our population is, um, is Chinese or has Chinese heritage, um, you know, similar to California and other parts of the world. You know, there's a diaspora that traces back to the gold rush, um, you know, the 1860s. And, um, I think through that as well is that we're mindful that globally in sports sponsorship, if you think back to the seventies and eighties, it was the Japanese car makers that started to really advertise and, and look for brand building through sports. Then in the 90s and early 2000s, it was your your, your Samsungs, your LGs, your Kias, um, you know, the Korean brands. And, you know, as China was going global, we saw sport really as a great way to localise and normalise your brand in a in a market. Um, and Australia's a really interesting market, I think, for a lot of Chinese brands. You know, where. We're highly competitive. We're really overregulated. But if you can make money and find a way to do things in Australia, it's a great testing ground. And partly because if you stuff up, no one, <laughs> no one's really going to know. Um, but you know, it's a great kind of testing ground, I think. And so, you know, if you think back to um, LG, LG was lucky gold star. It rebranded and its first sports sponsorship was in, uh, was in Melbourne, actually with the Melbourne Football Club. Uh, in the 90s, and that turned around to being sort of a massive sports sponsorship, similar with Emirates. Emirates was uh, is one of the dominant kind of global sporting partners of Arsenal and owns stadiums uh, across the world. Um, but it started with Collingwood, which was a uh, an AFL club in 2000 and uh, and in 2000. So, yeah, there's there's that opportunity. But I think the other reason is necessity, in the sense that. Um, particularly in Victoria, we've got 10 out of the 18 um, AFL clubs are based here. We have the Grand Prix. We have the Australian Open, which is in, in the start of the year. We have the Melbourne Cup. Uh, we have two uh, national basketball teams. Um, we've got two soccer teams, three soccer teams now. Um, and not to mention that's just in men's sport and with the sort of proliferation of women's sport, um, that's sort of just seeing that, for uh, a country as obsessed by sport, it means that there are fewer global players or even local players that are able to kind of pay for, um, uh, you know, the, I guess the starting price to to engage commercially with the with a sporting code like the AFL. Um, and given that we played the exhibition game in China in 2010, uh, we saw we could do it. And so it was actually really a, one of uh, an Adelaide club called Port Adelaide, and they just um, they got a Chinese sponsor um, and sort of unknown to us. 
um, and probably even a bit unknown to them. In the contract, they put in best endeavours to play a game in China. Now, best endeavours is not a binding term in a contract. It kind of you know means that yeah, we'll look at it, but we probably won't do it. And um, anyway, this guy Greg Watier, who's the um, uh, the sponsor of the Port Adelaide Football Club and his company Shanghai Cred, um, he meant it. And so um, he kind of, you know, he bankrolled it, he invested into it um, and announced it in 2016 when our Prime Minister happened to be in Shanghai. And um, then the game began. And so 2017 was the first game. And so we've played three games there. We weren't able to play it this year because of uh, COVID-19. But you've got this very domestic sporting code being the first um, code to to play um, a, a game for premiership points. So it wasn't like a an NBA end of season or a preseason game. This was this was for premiership points, which um, doesn't mean much to be honest to the local Chinese fans, but it means a lot to the Australians back here. So yeah, it was a really interesting opportunity. And so for me, coming on board in 2018, it was really driving out that strategy that had been um, approved by the commission um, and the AFL executive to really kind of use the game that had been created um, to really kind of grow, uh, I guess, our commercial interests as well as um, our audience growth into China. And being mindful that we'd kind of missed that first wave of sports, whether it was, you know, the NBA that had done it in the 90s, um, I guess a lot of the EPL clubs as well who had, had played um, and had been touring for years. Um, and it was interesting to kind of watch NHL um, and the ice hockey ahead of the Beijing Winter Olympics in terms of what they were doing. And we're mindful that we're a super niche sport. So, yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. So day-to-day, my, my job sort of pre-COVID was really about um, shoring up um, I guess our pipeline and looking for avenues within which to kind of be that bridge between Australia and China for Australian brands going into China as well as Chinese brands coming in to uh, into Australia. The game is pretty unique, and let's just say that the Chinese market is pretty unique. Yeah. How did you fit the AFL? into China. Uh, were there any unique aspects to the market that you're going into or the game that you were taking there that played well together? Uh, what were the challenges uh, that you faced due to any unique aspects of the game or the market that you're going into? And what does the future look like for the AFL in China? I, I, look, I, I think to be really honest, we're, we're really, we're really learning. Um, you know, as Deng Xiaoping maybe said, um, you know, you cross the river by feeling the stones. And so I think in, in some respects, a lot of our work to date has been really logistical. So it's been about putting on an event, putting on a game uh, and the unique challenges that happen with um, local public security, um, concerns about that many people in one place, alcohol being served, all those sorts of things, as well as player safety uh, and getting the ground up to up, up to um up to spec for uh, for a professional league, so all of those are unique challenges. Um, but I think uniquely, we were kind of really starting to to kind of build out that runway in terms of what that looked like. And so it was, you know, we're really close with um, you know people who had worked at NBA, and you know Kevin, who's at UFC now, um, you know Richard from NFL. Um, so we we're, we're kind of um, I guess learning our approach and, and 
we, to be really honest, you know, we're, we're like a big fish in a very small pond here. But, you know, in China, we weren't even a tadpole. We were, um, you know, Shanghai's big, but, you know, you've lived in Shanghai, Todd. Even when the Grand Prix on in town, you, you wouldn't know it, you know, sometimes, unless you, you sort of, um, you, you know, in, in Melbourne, when we have a sporting event, it takes over the city, um, even if it's a touring you know, EPL team, you know, we had a lot of work to do. We still needed to do a lot of Chinese language media. Um, our WeChat account was, was poor. Um, our social media presence was, was non-existent. We were building out and it just started, um, our Chinese office really and our staff, um, at the sort of tail end of last year. Um, so the future for us is uncertain. Um, we've just gone through a reset. We're playing our, um, our final series starting um, this week. Um, and I'm not sure if you guys have kind of followed it at all, but um, like a lot of sports, we um, suspended our season, which normally runs from March to the end of September. We suspended after our first round um, and then went on a kind of a break for six weeks, came back in June and have had to kind of have hubs and, um, you know, a credit to my colleagues that sort of working for the operations and, and, and others to kind of ensure that the season went ahead. Um, you know, our game is really taxing. It's not like Major League Baseball or NBA where you can play, you know, three games in a week. Um, you know, normally they kind of complain if they have a six-day turnaround or a five-day turnaround, but we were getting them to play three or four-day breaks. Um, we had a festival of footy, which was like every night there was a game on for <laughs> football to try and get through the um, – the, you know, the allocated games that we needed to get through for our broadcast deal as well as as to ensure that we got it. So for this year, we've kind of just been, um, you know, riding the ship and getting ready for what next season looks like. And obviously that involves China, um, which is really good and there's a, you know, there's a strong commitment from the AFL towards China. But what that looks like, we're still working through that. Um, and yeah, happy to share once, uh, <laughs> once we, once we get that, uh, once we get that sort of articulated and, and, and up through the commission. But at, the, at this stage, um, you know, it kind of feels like we were just starting to, to kind of walk. Um, and so, you know, if we have to take a pause, we'll take a pause, whatever that is. But yeah, we're, we're not, we're not sure what it is at this stage. Let's look at sports in China from a broader perspective. What sort of sports have Chinese audiences historically responded well to? Um, and how, how, how has that changed over, say, the last 10 years? I think it's interesting. I, I, I think sport has been kind of used um, a bit as a metaphor uh, for different purposes. And so I think, you know, the kind of the new Republic era of Sun Yat-sen uh, and others were kind of drawn into that, uh, you know, almost that sort of German Western European value of, of kind of exercise and morality. And, and so there was a real push to kind of do formalized exercise, which did include sport. And that then led obviously to the national games, which was, were being played. I mean, famously, uh, Chairman Mao, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say he swam, I think he kind of just kind of floated down the Yangtze River, um, you know, in the mid sixties, which kind of signaled to everybody that he was still healthy and he was able to kind of, you know, be, be up for, for what was really going to be the start of the cultural revolution. And, and then I think if you think about, uh, table tennis and ping pong, that was kind of used as part of the normalization relationships of, of, um, 
uh, between the US and and uh, and China. So sports always had a really interesting kind of place in in China, and I think the difference to most of your listeners and those that um, are coming from China is that um, sport, particularly from an Australian context, is a bottom-up grassroots kind of approach, which means that it's built off kind of um, community sport. So you as a family might play football, you might play cricket, you might play tennis, you join a, you join a club. Uh, if you're good, there are pathways and you go through that. And then there's an, there's a, there's a supportive base that's often built through volunteerism, um, and a passion that kind of, you know, couples might kind of fight when they have a newborn to, to see which team they support. Um, you know, and there's, there's that sort of aspect to it. And, and I think for a country like Australia, sport kind of gives us those myths and heroes that we don't have through our history, if that makes sense. So it's, it's an interesting, one, whereas I think in China it's very top down. It's 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 dictated by uh, the state, um, and there's a real centralisation of sports. And so I think traditionally the sports that were popular were those that China was good at. So, you know, I think the kind of coming out was '84 in the Olympics without the Russians there, the LA Games. You know, leaning winning, and where that went from there. And then on on top of that, I think you had volleyball. Obviously, has been huge for ages. You know, gymnastics, and then diving as well, where they've been really, really super good. And and then table tennis. And I think what you saw from kind of organised or professional sports, a lot of those were Olympic or, or, or sports, which, you know, interestingly are actually very individual in their in their kind of orientation and how they how they work. I think it was really, you know, basketball was was that I mean, I was on campus in the mid-90s and I remember sort of shooting hoops with some some fellow international students and this Chinese guy out of his dormitory shouted out, NBA, I love this game, you know, which was the catchphrase at the time. And, you know, it was the Yao Ming factor and, and all of those things, plus, I guess, just the huge marketing budgets, you know, the persuasiveness of kind of generations of superstars from Michael Jordan to Kobe Bryant to, to LeBron now that have really kind of captivated and, and um, you know, and, and also been endorsed by those by those brands like like Nike and others in, in terms of what they've done in market as well. But I think also what you're starting to see now is football or soccer really starting to to, to kind of kick off. And I, I don't know about you, Todd, but I used to go to some games back in the day, you know, and like Dalian was a power force, the the Sichuan team as well from Chengdu. And, and like, you know, they used to have like police guards because they wouldn't kind of trust the sports fans, um, you know, and, and – um, but now with Guangzhou Evergrande winning the Asian Champions League, um, I think in 2016, maybe, um, you know, and, and being, um, being found, being sort of, um, sponsored by, uh, Alibaba or Jack Ma as well as, as, as Hunga, huge, you know, property development company. You're starting to get people that kind of take, you know, they get tattoos of the players. There's kind of what we call Northern Terrace cheer squads that, you know, do chants and stuff. And you're starting to really build a culture of fandom that you don't see. And I, I've, you know, I, I know, you know, you know, Andrew from, from the, from the mailman group and, and he, he's seen that all unfold in China. And I think that in some respects, the diet of a Chinese sports fan is predominantly global and it's, it's less about the local. Even though Guan fans, uh, Beijing fans, actually, I tell you a really interesting story, super quick. Uh, one of the Champions League games was being played between Evergrande and Melbourne Victory, and the local consul, as they likely to do, is to try and 
bolster kind of patriotic spirit in the local Chinese community, um, gave out sort of Evergrande T-shirts, which I think they said, like, I do it for the motherland or something. A friend of mine, Ming Liu, he's a Beijing Guan fan. And I said, Ming, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that damn shirt? And he says, oh, it's free. But it's kind of like... It's like for me, and I'm sure maybe for you, Todd, if, if you barrack for a particular team, you're not wearing another team's um, T-shirt or jumper if someone gives it to you. Um, and so I think within that, I mean, that's obviously there's a lot to unpack there, but it's also partly around, I guess, that that sense of unity and that sense of understanding from a, a perspective of, of being Chinese first. So, um yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. I think I think sports have really developed. I think it's a huge industry. I think probably the biggest market for a lot of uh, global sports brands and, and sports industries would be really aware that um, I think in the, the 13th five-year plan, um, the central government made a really strong pitch um, around around sports development and the focus on, on, on the sports economy and really highlighted basketball uh, soccer and, and volleyball is the uh, the three big balls, as the report was called, um, to really focus on 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 driving out that that opportunity. And, and I reckon you're going to see, um, you know, I, there was a really interesting report saying Xi Jinping has this dream. You know, he has lots of China dreams, but one of them was to you know host or win a World Cup by 2050. And um, you know, the the, you know, staggering numbers of, of, of opportunities in terms of numbers of pitches that were going to be built, the number of coaches that were going to be trained. And, you know, numbers are important in China, but it'd be really interesting to sort of see five years on from the start of that plan, really where it came from. Another good example was Alibaba supposedly gave $100 million to the international rugby um, uh, IRB to kind of grow um, sevens. Uh, rugby in, in, in China. Now, that was even seven years ago. I don't know if any money's changed hand. And I'd be really surprised to see the development of rugby and rugby sevens, notwithstanding that the women's, I think, either won gold or came silver in the Rio games. But, you know, we just um, we haven't sort of seen that sort of development. So I think the biggest the biggest kind of difference is the way people um, support um, and as well as the structures of sport in China. Has your work with Red Tape primarily been targeted at getting Chinese consumers to travel to Australia for sports? Uh, does it involve bringing Australian events like tennis matches or Grand Prix to China or something else altogether? And just curiously, uh, at the end of that, talk to us a little bit about, I know that, um, you know, North American fans of, of any sport or athlete will travel, uh, lots and lots of miles to, to go watch their team or their player play. Uh, are the Chinese similar in that respect? Yeah. So Red Tape was interesting. So as a China advisory business, we really kind of did a couple of things. One was, um, around cultural intelligence. So I did a lot of training in corporate Australia and government around, um, I guess understanding how how to kind of engage with China and some of the cultural nuances and the differences and and whether or not you wanted to use that, but just helping you understand, um, I guess the approach to that. I also took a lot of trade missions uh, to China, uh, so that was like predominantly businesses that were were looking and it was kind of in the food and wine space uh, mainly. And then sports kind of developed out of that. Um, you know, the the one that I talked earlier about with the exhibition game and playing a game in China was was kind of a moment for me. Um, and then probably towards the end, it started to being looking at 
the inbound as more Chinese um, got passports, more people were traveling. It was also looking at the Chinese community in Australia and how important that was either as an act as a bridge for, you know, what we now call the Daigo market, which is the kind of personal shoppers that buy stuff through WeChat and send it back to China. Um, and then we have a huge, um, you know, student community as well as we did. Um, and so it was really about helping those um, events, um, whether it was kind of like the Royal Melbourne Show, which is like the, you know, kind of county or state fairs in, in the States, through to the Grand Prix and the Australian Open in terms of sharpening up their tourism and their offering for inbound Chinese tourists or the local Chinese market. So that was when I worked more in the digital space. So we were doing a lot of WeChat mini programs, helping people um, develop that. So, um, yeah, it was it was a really interesting time um, over that sort of seven or eight years with, with Red Tape and then moving into Bastion for three. Um, and then I think on the question around the sports fan in China um, and their propensity to travel and geography, um, I... I think there's a there's a sense and a connection, and it's interesting too. Like, because you know, if you say to your Chinese friends, "Where's your Laojiao?" which is you know, like your hometown, um, it can be complicated because it might be where your father was born, or your mother was born, where you were born, or where you were raised, where you went to school. Um, you know, so that identity is kind of now, obviously, with the sort of dropping of the hukou and the ability to travel. Um, I think that's changed a bit, but. Uh, the only thing I would say, again, similarly to kind of some of the questions I answered previously around, I guess, the change in sports that I've seen is that, you know, Usain Bolt went to, um, uh, you know, this was the guy who was leading into the Beijing Olympics, you know, gold medalist, incredible athlete. Um, and there was a light rain. And um, I think it was at the Shanghai Stadium, and that, that could hold forty-five thousand. I reckon they were probably expecting maybe thirty odd thousand, but in the end, they got four thousand. And so um, that now Usain Bolt's a personality; he's a he's an extreme athlete. Um, so I think sports fans in China about I, I think there are some very parochial and very rusted on local fans. And they will, uh, you know, for the soccer clubs, and they will go and follow their team when they when they go and play. Um, but I, I, I think realistically, I think um, sport as a pursuit is probably a middle class pursuit when you've when you've got your kids sorted, when you've got your house or your apartment, when you've got job security, then you can kind of think about how I spend my idle time if that makes sense and and i think interestingly enough for a lot of chinese people with sports that's coming at the time too when you know there's gaming there's smartphones there's there's apps there's there's so many kind of attention um you know distractors really whereas you know back in the day it was kind of sports was your outlet so I think they're coming to it at a really different time in terms of a lot of different ways that China has as well, but um, on on other industries. But yeah, I, I I think I think sports is is starting to to be followed. But at the same time too, I think there are people that feel passionately about Manchester United or Arsenal, and will go and eat in an Arsenal themed restaurant in Shanghai and watch all the games. You know, at, at weird times in the night because of the difference when when the teams were playing in in, in Europe. But um, and similarly with with NBA teams, though, or athletes, they'll go and um, pay money to watch LeBron sink some baskets and talk trash for an hour. You know, and so 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but I, I, I just don't think, similar to what I said about the structures of sport, I, I think it, that's why there isn't that 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 sense of engagement, um, you know, and, and also probably because talented athletes get identified early, they get put into systems, whether it's sports schools and then sports universities. And if you if you don't make the national team or the provincial team, you end up being a coach. And if you don't make being a coach, you become an official. Um, but at the same time, too, you know, you look at what's been going on with the CBA recently, um, and the you know the, the shifts and changes with local staff there. It's yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of a lot of the domestic leagues have been, um, you know, uh, I think have been really much better run than they used to be. There's a lot of concerns about the you know the uh, was it the um, the soccer leagues there around, um, and that's been cleaned up. You know. Um, much much better, but yeah, there's this you know that that whole sense of officialdom and the and the running of sports is interesting. How would you perceive the reaction to some of the more aggressive, assertive, or, or even perceived as violent parts of certain sports with regards to you know fighting in the NHL or the yeah. aggressiveness of yeah. of the NFL or even boxing or the UFC? I mean, UFC is really interesting. They've, they've, I think they've kind of tapped a really interesting market there, and obviously with uh, with their female fighter being a world champ, you know, helps as well. And the AFL and Australian football famously used to have king hits and big bumps, and it still is aggressive. We have tackling, and even for a lot of non-Chinese fans, they go, "Whoa, that's really rough," you know, or in Chinese, "lihai," which is kind of formidable. But you know, a lot of Chinese people, when they first see it, they go, "This game's not for me. It doesn't feel like it's for me." And there's there's a lot of kind of deep questions you can ask around that aspect of and definition of masculinity in China and how it how it plays out through to that perception of not being visible. And I think that's why Yao Ming and the NBA was so important because it it kind of showed that even though Yao Ming was you know literally a freak of nature and so amazing, but you know there was a Chinese space. It's that adage of, you know, um, you can be what you can see. Um, and so I think for us um, at the AFL, our biggest challenge is having more Chinese Australians or, um, you know, we have a, a strong Indigenous Australian population that plays. We've um, had um, increasingly African migrants playing the game, but uh, as well as um, from the Middle East and, and, and elsewhere, we're just a real underrepresentation of Chinese Australians. But that ability to see that, so I, I think a lot of, I think there's there's that perception that that, that violence is not, um, it's not what um, you know it means to be Chinese, um, and it feels foreign. But I think there's a way within which is how you shape it and how you frame it. And so for us, we always talked about the AFL as being, I guess. Um, kind of the healthy outdoor aspirational lifestyle of kind of brand Australia. So, you know, brand Australia up until recently had a really great name in China. It was sort of seen as being, you know, um, young, youthful, um, sunny, environmentally clean, um, healthy, fit. Um, and so uh, AFL was an extension of that, both for our male and female athletes. And so that's sort of how we positioned it. It's not that we played down the, the aggression, but it was sort of more um, providing it um, as a as an opportunity to kind of show how amazing these athletes are and tapping into that kind of wellness um, trend that's really happening in China. So again, that's sort of some of the ideas we had, but um, you know, we were just sort of formulating how we'd roll that out. Okay, well, piggybacking off that a little bit, let's talk a, a how to market a sport 
to Chinese audiences. Uh, talk a little bit about how that might differ uh, to marketing locally uh, or in Europe or, or North America. Uh, is it vastly different uh, than than marketing other B2C products, services, organizations, uh, you name it? Uh, how, how, do, how do you work with that? How, do you, how would you juxtapose that? Well, I, I think for us, our challenge is we're uniquely Australian, but then that gives us that, that, that pitch, if that makes sense. So we, we're not a global sport. Um, we're not played in any other country other than Australia, uh, with the exception of the games we've been playing recently in China. So it's more about how do you, how do you kind of share that? And it's, it's kind of knowing the rapid changes that China's, I guess, undergone. And so the dramatic, you know, increase in, in kind of digital literacy, um, the savviness of e-commerce as their consumers that they have, um, which far outweighs the kind of smarts and the, the applications that we have here in Australia, even in lockdown. Um, so part of it is, is knowing how to, how to kind of play. And, and, you know, you, you, you'll hear seminars, you'll hear podcasts talking about young brands and what they did for, um, you know, for KFC in China and how they kind of localized. Um, the content and I, I think really uh, there's a need to do that and, and, um, there's a need to, to kind of be aware of, um, I guess the trends in China and those trends are, are rapid and quick, but it's also about having an ability to, to kind of frame the game, um, in a way that Chinese audiences, um, can engage and understand that. Um, you know, and for us in Australia and with the AFL and what we've done in China, you know, we're still a long way in developing that. Um, and I think, um, you know, there have been some great sports and some great athletes that have done done really well, whether it's been on WeChat, Weibo, or now Douyin or other Billy Billy and other types of platforms. But you need to be well resourced. You need to you need to um, kind of under, understand what your your um, your message is, and then and then it's about conveying it. So I think. Uh, you know, there's no unified pathway to China. Um, doesn't matter if you're a, uh, a wine from, you know, from Victoria or a wine from New Zealand, each one has a different, you know, you have to kind of almost map out a different strategy for each brand. So I think for us, that's, that's something that we're mindful of. Let's talk a little bit and maybe close this talking about China-Australia relations. Australia has a unique relationship with China, I think we can say. Gone through some changes. Uh, there's been some hiccups uh, along the way. Talk to us a little bit about how the relationship between the two countries is going right now and where you're seeing it maybe going in the future and, and how that plays a role in how you're able to do business and take a sport like the AFL to China. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, Australia was one of the first countries to, to kind of recognize China, our, our opposition leader in 71 before Nixon went to China. And then as soon as he was uh, made prime minister in 73, he normalized relations one year after uh, the U.S. did. Um, you know, so we've we've had a really strong relationship. And I think it's really been built off kind of mutual kind of respect around demand and supply, if that kind of makes sense. Uh you know, we had the natural resources, uh, we've got the education systems, um, tourism destinations, I guess the wine and the food and all those sorts of things that um, appeal to Chinese consumers. And um, and to be perfectly honest, you know, certainly post-GFC, you know, the, the kind of stimulus package that um, the Chinese government put, put forward domestically um, meant that there was a, a great demand for our natural resources, which kind of helped us 
um, you know, kind of continue on. And, you know, up until the coronavirus, we'd had 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth. Now, that wasn't huge, you know, 5%, 10% GDP like China. It was sort of 2%. But, you know, I think most Australians had a really kind of benign view of China um, and China by China, I'm saying the country and the government. Um, I think more recently, um, you know, whether it's, it's been some issues around the South China Sea and um, uh, other political things that, that have that have happened and I think the response and the, I guess there's been a shift in the Australian government in terms of um, the way it's approached. I think China has also changed, obviously, um, under Xi Jinping after 2012. We've seen more recently, you know, the... Um, uh, probably a more um, a more centralising role for the party in in domestic um, life in China, and that's I guess reflected internationally. I think we've also seen um, you know the term limits um, ending has meant that there's probably been um, you know a, a different approach from from China as much as it has been from Australia, and and with that. Um, you know, we put some legislation in, which is called anti um, sort of foreign interference, um, which is for all countries. But, uh, you know, we also banned uh, Huawei uh, from our 5G network ahead of um, sort of some of the concerns in the US and UK more recently. Um, and I think all these sorts of things have, have, um, have really, um, you know, made China unhappy with our approach. And I think there's a perception that we're sort of in bed with the US and we always are from a security perspective because of the alliance that we have. Um, but, you know, our foreign affairs minister made it quite clear when Secretary of State Pompeo kind of put some pretty interesting stuff out there about China. And, and she said, well, with respect to our relationship with China, we have our own relationship and, and you know, we're pursuing it, um, you know, through mutual respect. Um, it's certainly at the moment at a low point. Um, and I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of geopolitics that are playing out through the US-China relationship. Um, you know, that, that a country like Australia and perhaps even Canada gets caught up in. Um, and I think that from that, um, you know, we as Australia's um, sort of number one sporting code and as I sort of said that um, aspect of brand Australia, um, you know, we're fairly, we're fairly aligned to that kind of relationship. So I think for us, you know, we, we take um, – Dips and curves um, in, in 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 along with that, but certainly from from our understanding, our relationships with um, our government officials, our stakeholders, others that um, are working in China with us, um, you know, we're still broadcasting our games into China this year. Um, there hasn't been a, a shift at all in terms of anything that we've noticed, um, and I, I think if anything, um, we've kind of um, both countries, or let's say both governments, have kind of mapped out um, really where they stand. And in some respects, that makes it easier to navigate what might be a new normal. Um, but whereas before, perhaps there was ambiguity, um, there's a, a lot more clarity around that. Um, and it will be challenging, but uh, I think um, I think each business um, will will decide how they um, yeah how they work through that. Tom, great chatting with you today. Thanks again so much for coming on the show. Cheers, man. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. 
when you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.